out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for the next 60 minutes for another packed program, as always, playing the finest in indie pop. And also, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of Sadiv Ignorant, co-founder of the anarcho-punk band Crass, but has gone on, apart from that incredible career, um, to have many other artistic and creative adventures, plus a solo career as well, and has recently brought out a new album. This is under Steve Ignorant's Slice of Life. The album is titled Don't Turn Away. It came out in 2019. If you haven't heard it, check it out. There are a lot of fantastic songs, including one titled Sad. S-A-D. Anyway, this is the interview, and this is the first part, and the only part, really, um, when I've been talking about David Bowie's last album, Black Star, um, and how this slightly reminded me of the sentiment of that, to that. And this was Steve's response. Steve, it's over to you. Yeah, I, yeah, I can understand that. I mean, I, I've sort of realised that myself. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, un, it, I think it was unconscious. <laughs> yes. Because you know, because ever it's really funny because um, ever since he, um, um, ever since he died, I've sort of not really been listening a lot to him. Um, but because I, you know, because obviously the nature of slice of life is like slightly acoustic, and uh, and I suddenly realised that of you know I've always said you know that my favourite album was um um you know ziggy stardust and the spiders from mars and i'm not sure it is anymore funny enough because i what i've been realizing is that i've been you know subconsciously sort of influenced by um his early stuff like when he was dave when he just first started out as david bowie he did this album with um you know like uncle arthur and uh when i lived my dream and you know very acoustic-y stuff on it and i've realized that you know they're some of my favorites Yes, well, it's interesting that that kind of folk period of the late sixties, because uh, I think he did a few. He re he revisited them on an album called Toy, which never got released. But I've heard a few of the tracks, and lyrically right. they're amazing. And mm. when I hear the original, it's like they're very folky. They haven't had a bit more, you know. I mean, it was a bit sort of thin, but at the same time. Um, I do, I can't remember the title of one of the songs, but he's absolutely, he's really nailed it in about yeah. 1968. And you're thinking, yes. And then he had his great love affair with Hermione and yeah. and all that kind of period. And I, I do love that kind of story of Bowie being part of that kind of, I suppose, very folky scene from the 60s and his arts lab stuff that he did in South London before sort of he, he sort of ventured into the world that was glam yeah. rock and yeah, the Stooges. Yeah. <laughs> so, and- yes. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I've, I've, I'm always very, you know, I'm, you know, because a couple of tracks, well, I, you know, slice we live, we do a cover of London Boys, right? And, uh, yes, that's and, a classic. Uh, oh, that's a sod for me to do. By God, it just don't stop going up in bloody no, you know, in octaves or whatever the fuck it is, you know, it just keeps going up and up, and I'm screeching away there, Christ. Um, but 
I'm very, very conscious not to do the Anthony Newley. I was going to say, yes, were you turned in your inner Anthony Newley period? <laughs> yes, that was, uh, that was quite cool. I mean, I, when I live my dream. <laughs> <laughs> I know, musical, where David was going into musical theatre there, really, wasn't he? So that's all good. But is it possible to get a bit of an idea of your very... Because I'm, I'm, to confess, I mean, I was born in the mid-60s, so I'm mid-50s yeah. now. So my, my kind of musical awakening, I suppose, was the late 60s, listening to because my mum probably had Radio 2 on, listened to Jimmy Young and that kind of stuff. And then it was kind of uh, the kind of usual cliche of Top of the Pops and listened to, you know, like all that stuff from Alice Cooper and Slade and T-Rex. And then, thankfully, my first love, an album and single, was David Bowie's Space Oddity. Right. God, I did. I wanted to be in Gary's gang, I have to confess that, at one stage. Mm. But um, I was 10 at the time. It was innocent, yeah. period. <laughs> oh, you so, would have loved that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, dear old Gary Glitter. But, yeah. um, so what was your kind of teen years listening to music? Uh, teen years, well, it started off um, the first time I realised there was music that I wanted to, you know, um, that I wanted to listen to, of my choice, because, you know, obviously, like you, uh, grew up with my grandparents, they were listening to the to the gramophone, they used to call it, radiogram, that's it, bloody radiogram. And uh, my nan's favourite was Frank Highfield and Frankie Vaughan and all this sort of stuff. And my granddad liked uh, brass bands, you know, marching music. And uh, and and uh, me, but who was my mum? Oh, oh, see, I can't remember. My mum liked someone else, like maybe Perry Como or something. So it was all this stuff. But the first time I heard something uh, that I thought, oh, you know, that's that's exciting, that's different, uh, was uh, um, 5456, Toots and the Matles. Oh, right. Yeah, and and uh, I'd, I'd been, I was sitting in, in a friend's back garden and and the next door neighbour came walking down the, the garden path with a single under his, under his arm. But he was he had very short hair and uh, sort of side parting shaved into it. Uh, and he was wearing this suit, which was amazing because it changed colour as he walked. And of course, it's one of the first skinheads I've ever seen. And the, and the spark for me was that I said to me, mate, I want to look like that. And I want to, you know, and then he put this record on. I went, oh, I love this music because you, you don't have to know how to dance. Yes. To dance to it, if you see what I mean. You just sort of jiggle about a bit. And um, and from that point, that was the, the spark that went, you know, there is this thing called identity and you can have it. But, you know, you're going to have to work for it, which I did, you know. Um, and that was the start of it, really. So, I, I, you know, um, but obviously, of course, there was the, you know, the bands that were on top of the pops or, you know, whatever the programs were, you know, like the, the Who and, um, you know, the Beatles and all that sort of stuff, you know, that had been there. But that record was the first time I thought, oh, you know, that's, that's the one for me. Yes. And was that the late 60s? Yeah, that would, yeah, that would have been, yes, it, yeah, yeah. That would have been 68, 69. Right. So that was, and whereabouts, where, were, where did you grow up? That was Dagenham. Right. Dagenham Dave. <laughs> Not quite Dagenham Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, God. So, did you, when you were at school, did, did, were you all, did you have mates who were also sort of on a similar sort of path as you? Um, well, I mean, there was this sudden burst, you know, as you probably remember, you know, the explosion of every, every working class kid was a skinhead. Um, and so we were all wearing boots and braces if we could afford them, you know, or sort of vague mishmash of that of that look. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't think all of them were sort of. I think they were, just because you you were skinhead, you listened to reggae. You know, I'm not sure that everybody really liked it or everybody quite got it. If you know what I mean. Yes. Um, 
and uh, and uh, and and then of course the skinhead thing faded out and it became sort of suede head and then long hair came in and then of course uh, I don't know if you remember a program called Budgie with Adam Faith in it oh yes Budgie. on TV yeah well he started up a, a fashion without realising it which was where the satin jackets came in I don't know if you remember those and people wearing flares and clogs and baggy trousers right but, um, I can remember because my brother was a little bit more fashionable than I was and he got these yeah. things called Birmingham bags with really baggy That's jeans right. yeah, well, yeah we, we called them Oxford bags for some reason but um, you know but yeah you know bags and Rupert Bear trousers and things like, and of course the platform shoes came in I guess it was um, Slade wasn't it it was the Slade yeah and, and everyone but everyone sort of grew their hair out um and then you would see these sort of like mullety, um, Rod Stewarty, you know, coxcomb on top, but then a sort of mullety thing at the back, and that for some reason became a, a real fashion. Yes, um, I can remember that well. That was a kind yeah. of mashup of, of kind of the guy from, I suppose, Slay, the Slade guy was quite fun. You know, he was there, wasn't he? Really? Yeah. God, I can't remember his name. But anyway, yes, Elder. yes. Oh, who was the guitarist though? With the really no, sort of... Dave Hill. <laughs> God. Yeah. Oh, well, it's great being in a band. You get all these birds. Uh, yeah, great. Do you, Dave? Go and play guitar. Fuck off, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, actually, the one band that was really big because I come from you know working class country background, countryside background, and you know village and little towns. But it was status quo. The one band you never mentioned in any sort of unpleasantness because you get beaten up with status quo. Right. They were they were the you know denim and long hair. And discos yeah. with you know a heavy metal half hour. It was just headbangers. Yeah, it was, it was yeah. quite frightening, really. But um, yeah, so when did you sort of find a voice? Did you start to sort of think I want to be in a band one day? Um, no, I, 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 um, I mean it's when I got into uh, David Bowie really, and uh, um, and that's when I thought, oh, I'd like to be a, like everybody does. Oh, I'd like to be a pop star. You know, I'd like to do that because then I wouldn't have to get up and go to work in this shitty supermarket, you know, and I wouldn't have to get up at nine and I'd sort of, people would be taking pictures of me and I'd get all these wonderful girls and things, you know, and drive around, be driven around in cars and all this. And, uh, but I mean, I'm, you know, how the hell was I going to do it? You know, living in Dagenham, earning, what was I earning? 20, 24 quid a week. Um, you know, firstly, where do you buy a guitar in Dagenham? Secondly, how the fuck do you play it? And then where where do you play it? You know, and how do you get a band together? You know, because like, I I thought you know you had to read music and all this kind of thing. Um, so I I just thought you know and there was me you know Friday night before I went down the pub night there was me you know me David Bowie sort of haircut with the hairbrush in the front room miming to um, <laughs> miming to his songs. Yes. Um, you know, and uh, but I never, you know, never ever thought it would ever happen. You know, I mean, not I'm a pop star or anything, but um, and it wasn't until punk came along that it, it sort of enabled. It was something like, oh, you don't have to read music then. No, no, you don't. You know, it's um, you you can just do it, and and that was a real opener. Yes, because I, I guess because because I'm, as I gave away my age there, but I had an older brother who was seven years older who I worshipped at the time, and he was yeah. very into the prog rock world. So actually, I have got a strange kind of because I was obsessed with music for you know I don't know why, but you one you sometimes have these obsessions that you still have. But 
I had sneak into his room to play his records when he wasn't about because he'd banned me from listening to any of them. Well, you know, just touching them because he was very precious about them. So I sort of got into that whole, you know, prog world until yeah. about, you know, so it was always kind of in the back of my mind. But like you, you sort of think, my God, you, you need to be some sort of genius to do all this. Yeah. And, and no Roger Dean to have a poster or um, have a cover. So, yeah, so when Punk came along, his, his generation definitely didn't like it. <laughs> they did yeah. not accept it with anything. So what was the kind of the, the kind of the moment that you thought, oh my God, that's that that that's kind of the you know the door into another world for me. Um, well, two things really. I was living in Bristol at the time, working in a hospital. I was living with my brother, funny enough, and um, watching TV one night. And it wasn't the Bill Grundy interview; it was a Janet Street Porter interview with the Sex Pistols. And it showed them doing their, you know, doing their gig. And afterwards, you know, John, John Rotten was standing and, and uh, he looked so bored and fed up, you know, and I was like, he, and he just looked great, you know, they all looked great. It's just, just the noise of it, you know, my brother who was older than me, you know, I said to him, if I came home looking like that, what, what would you do? And he went, I'll tell you, we're going to have a bath. You know, this from the greatest intergalactic hippie of all time. You know? Oh, right, patchouli. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, and then a few few days later, I was uh, working in the hospital, and uh, um, I had to put a plaster pu- pu- plaster cast on this girl's wrist, and um, and she was wearing these strange clothes. I went, "What's with the what's with the weird gear then?" And she went, "Aren't you at a punk rock?" And I went, "No, well, think, I think so. Is that a sex thing is?" Or and she meant, "Yeah." And that and that, and uh, she said, "Well, look, if you're interested, there's a band playing in the Coast Knoll on Friday," and I went, "Well, will you be there?" And she went, "Yeah." I went, "Well." So I'll meet you outside, and she went, "Yeah, all right." And um, and it was the Clash. Oh, well, that's uh, that's yeah, really supported handy. Supported by Richard Hell, I think. And uh, I, I I remember when the Clash came on, um, it just absolutely blew me away. I mean, it was they just looked fantastic, you know. Uh, Paul Simonon looked about twenty feet tall, you know, and so good looking, and you know, but just the noise, you know, just the sound of it, and it took it was just something. Um, and I thought that's that's it. You know, and uh, the next week I had um, left my job, uh, went back to Dagnum uh, with a vague idea of starting a band. Didn't know how I was going to do it, but I was going to do it somehow. Um, went back to Dagnum to see my old drinking buddies. Um, but they, they by that time, because I hadn't seen them for a couple of years, and by that time they'd all either got married or got girlfriends and things and all this. So then I thought, well, I'll go and see my old mate uh, Penny Rambo um, over there in uh, Essex. Yes, uh, so I popped over, and that's when you know the fatal day came when Penn said to me, "What you, you know, what you doing?" And I went, "Oh, I'm in a punk rock, and I'm thinking of starting a band." And he went, "I'll play drums for you if you like." Excellent. And that was the start of that. Yeah, yeah. there was that moment. I know. There's there's, there's, a, yeah. there's a lot of those. So how did you? Because there had been that. F- I know. In I suppose in the sixties there had been quite a few festivals in America, and then and then sort of there was these fairs and festivals kind of in East Anglia, the Barsham fairs and Albion fairs, and then there's various other ones. The was it Stonehenge and and various other little bits and pieces. Actually, yeah. there were quite a few in the early seventies. So by seventy seven, then had you already sort of met Penn? How did you sort of know about Dial well, House? Well, again, that was that was my brother, and that was back in. Hang on, that that was. That was be 1973 because I met them after they'd done the International Conference of Experimental Sound or something, ISIS 72 I can remember the little handbills that they used to have on the wall and so it must have been 73 that my brother took me to this he said I'll take you over to meet these people I've met and you can go there and you can go in any room you want but not not, not the bedrooms 
and um, and if you want to cook a meal, you can cook a meal, and if you want to sort of pro, you know recite a poem, you can recite a poem, and blah blah. I was like, yeah, hey, sounds weird. So over I went in my baggy trousers and platform shoes and you know budgie jacket, and uh, it took me to this amazing cottage, and the, I couldn't understand a word the people were saying because they all seemed to be talking with like same words with 15 syllables in them. Um, all sounded like they've got marbles in their mouths. And hey, would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> and uh, they didn't have a didn't have a telly, and that was really weird. Um, but they had stones in the living room, you know. So what the fuck was going on there, you know? Um, but I it just amazed me, yes. you know. And I I just uh, so then after that, you know, I I got to know him, and I used to play truant, or I'd go over there any time I could, you know, stay at weekends and things, and you know, got to know him really well. And the thing I really liked about it, I'd been dabbling. Um, because I've always been a great reader, I've been dabbling at school um, and reading a lot of books um, by that time. Uh, I've been sort of dabbling in poetry, um, and it, um, I can't remember if it was Penn or someone else who, who read some poetry, and he said, well, look, you know, you don't have to write la di da di da di da da di da di da you know, rhyme at the end. Um, he said, look, you know, read this book, um, give this a go, and then you might get an idea, and it was... Um, uh, it was Jack Kerouac's on the road. Nice, Classic. and uh, and I tried it, but I couldn't get on with it because there was the, I, I was getting out of breath in my head because there was no punctuation. You know, it's just this like long ranty thing, and I was like, oh, I can't get into that. So um, another bloke said, "We'll try this one," and it was um, it was called Last Exit to Brooklyn oh, uh, by yes. Hubert, yeah, Hubert Selby, and that I just loved, uh, and I got into that, and and that sort of helped me um, write prose rather than poetry. Um, and they always encouraged me, all of them there, said, you know, don't matter how stupid it seems or sounds, just write it down, just write it down, you know, just just do it, just do it. And uh, and that's the first time that any adult um, had given me any encouragement like that. Yes. Um, and sort of talked to me like an equal. Yeah, amazing. God, so, yeah. so you must have felt like this was kind of home. Oh, it was it was heaven, you know. I'm, I'm, um, you know, I just... Always, always wanted to live there. Yeah, you know, always. You know, um, and I ended up living there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, you're the singer and Penn's the drummer, which is yeah. good. But yeah. there was a sort of yeah, the White Stripes had a good time, didn't they? But how did you, how did you, how did the band start to develop from, from that, from a duo, the Peters and Lee? Well, it was really bizarre because we, you know, I said to Penn, "What about guitars and things?" He went, "Oh, we won't bother with that. It'd just be drums and vocals." And I went, oh, and "He went, well, who else is doing it?" I said, oh, no, I suppose so. And, and uh, he said, well, then we'll, we'll, we'll do that. I mean, you have to remember that me and Penn didn't think it would ever get further than the Garden Gate. I mean, I think really the, the, the idea of our band was that we would perform to people when they came over to stay. You know, there was a lot of um, ex-hippie types coming over still. And, you know, I think we enjoyed sort of shocking them when they saw us you know, with chains and safety pins, and, and whereas before Penn had been sort of long hair and sort of, you know, a bit hippie-ish. And uh, I think that was really our, our idea. But then one day a guy called Steve Herman turned up to talk to Penn. Steve Herman had been involved in the Wally Hope uh, thing, um, something to do with the inquest. Um, and um, and Penn said to and I mean, but he didn't look anything like a punk at all. He looked like an ageing, balding hippie. You know, he came... He came. He was wearing one of those rainbow tank tops. Oh yes, classic. you know, and open sandal <laughs> shoes and things. And I was like, oh. 
and then Penn said, uh, "Oh, what?" And old Steve Herman said to Penn, and, "And what are you up to at the moment?" And Penn said, "Oh, me and Steve have started a band." And then Steve Herman said, "Oh, I play guitar, and I've oh, I was looking at Penn from behind Steve's back, and I was shaking my head, going, no, no." And Penn said, "Oh, well, perhaps you should come join." And I was like, "Oh, for fuck's sake!" So he was in the band. So. Uh, and then uh, the next person to turn up was, believe it or not, Andy Palmer. And uh, he goes, what are you up to? And he said, oh, we've you know, started a band. Oh, I'd, you know, I'd, I'll be in it. Right, OK, then what can you play? Well, nothing. So <laughs> 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 he went and stole a guitar. And we, we tuned it to an open chord, and he just put his hand over the top and moved it up and down the fretboard, and that was him. him. Um, to this day, Andy Palmer's never learned to play the guitar as you should do, if you know what I mean. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, the last person to, um, to join, well, one of the last people to join was um, Pete Wright, and um, he used to rehearse at Dahl House with a folk band of his, um, which wasn't really going anywhere. And he came out of the rehearsal room one day and he went, oh, you know, he said, I don't feel I can do this much more. And I went, well, why don't you come in with us then? And he went, you know what, I will. And he did. And that, that was the start of the band proper. Yes. And then, um, yeah, it, it was very strange. Though. I mean, you know, in the end, we had to get rid of Steve Ehrman because it wasn't not because of the look, but because of the the, the sound. Um, it, it, the guitar he used and everything was, it was it was too Burt Whedon and not enough. Um, I don't know uh, Eddie Cocker and if I'm putting, yes. it, I, I don't know, you know, it, um, but it needed someone. It needed someone to fit. So then, when Phil Free came along, he was the ideal choice you know because he had a proper electric guitar you know and he sort of you know was taller and thinner and looked more the part if you know what i mean so yes and also i think there was was it the was it hank from the shadows i think he was a great inspiration for a few punk guitarists because he had a quite clean so he wasn't trying to bend chords like Jimi hendrix or eric clapton i think it was quite sort of yes quite straightforward so when you so you got the band seventy seven, and the first album comes out incredibly quickly. So you must have yeah. suddenly been on an amazing sort of creative splurge there, as in working twenty four seven to sort of bring this round so fast. Um, yeah, it was quite quick. Uh, I mean, we played a few gigs and stuff. Um, Action Space and the Roxy, of course, um, up there in London. Uh, but then uh, we had a friend who was doing, for some reason, was doing window displays and he he did I think somehow he popped into Small Wonder Records and he had a rehearsal cassette of ours or a, a recording that we'd done and I can't remember where we'd done it it's all a bit vague now um, but he gave it to Pete Stennett and said oh you might want to listen to this and Pete that evening Pete Stennett phoned us up and said well I'd be interested in doing a single with you and um, and we said, well, okay then. So we went over to see him, and uh, and we said, can we do a twelve-inch single? And he said, well, what would you put on it? And we we'll put on our entire set. And the feeding of five thousand was our entire set at the time. Yes, and that I mean, obviously, it, it kind of um, there's a lot of material, but most of the songs are quite short. So did um, so when you went to record the sh- record that were all the songs done beforehand and you just went and did it a bit like the Black Sabbath's first album or were you kind of almost writing it on the spot? Oh no, they, no, that, they all the songs were already rehearsed and we had, we, we had already been playing them, you know, for for months. Yes. Um, so you know we we were down pat with them, but it was done. I think it was that the whole recording was done. We used some studios, um, and John Lodi gave us a special deal for doing the dead time. You know, so we would go in about um, 
11 at night and leave at 5 in the morning. Um, and that whole record, that whole album was recorded overnight. Um, and we just had to go in and do a couple of what, what we call drop-ins. Yeah. Um, obviously, it was tape at that time. It wasn't, you know, um, digital. But, uh, and it was all done incredibly quickly. And, and, you know, the cover, we said we'd just have it black and white. We'll do it as cheaply as possible and we'll get it out there, you know. And because uh, our idea was pay no more than um, because then the record shops can sort of put their little bit of bunts on it and rip people off. Um, and, uh, I mean, my idea was always, you know, if we kept it under a fiver or something, um, you know, people would be able to buy the record and buy a packet of fags or have a pint of beer as well. So that was always my idea behind it, you know, do it cheap. So and then, you know, we and also we were hoping other bands pick up on that. Uh, and with this wild, wild, wild eyed dream we had, you know, that maybe we could overtake the mu- you know, we could bring the music business down to our level, sort of thing, so that everyone was getting cheap records. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I know that. Um, Prayers and Pillows, that one from Cherry Red came out for one ninety nine. It was quite a thing at the time, wasn't it? The um, yeah. Don't Pay More. But when, you know, fast forward quite a few decades, when you heard Jeffrey Lewis, I know probably everyone mentions this, don't they? Yeah. Um, and he, he does a lot of your songs, well, he does 12 actually, doesn't he? Uh, covers, mm. including End Result. Were, yeah. you, were you amazed when you heard, you know, a, ver- a, a completely different version and, and really sort of went, well, yeah, I, I was. I mean, I think, uh, and I told Jeffrey this, you know, when I met him, and because uh, I went to see him play in Cambridge, he was playing a little pub in Cambridge, and I just sort of turned up there and mate and uh, spoke to him and you know his, his band, and uh, I really liked the way that he changed end result. I really liked the, his treatment on that. But some um, some of the of the songs I thought worked, and some didn't. Um, so you know, I couldn't see much difference. Um, yes. uh, no, overall, I mean, I just found it amazing that someone had taken a song I'd written and sort of put a different tune to it. I mean, I was absolutely astounded by it. Yes, uh, it must know. it must be quite nice when you sort of think, my God, I can vaguely remember writing that in 1977, yeah. which was uh, yeah. decades ago now, and you have to use your fingers going, that's probably four decades. And then, you know, this kid in America, New York, kind of gets it and plays it and then thinks, oh, well, no, I'll do an acoustic version. Yeah, yeah. Which is always yeah. nice. Which is well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very humbling. <laughs> so then, as as kind of doing this show, and I've sort of you know done a lot of interviews with bands. There is the kind of trying to follow things up and keeping it together is always a bit tricky. So once that came out, there were you know you always have that honeymoon period. What was it like, sort of trying to then keep this going? Because because obviously you quickly get a following, don't you? Yeah, we uh, well we you know um, yeah we got a following. We kept it going. Uh, we had a couple of crappy old bands that we'd got. I mean, and then um, uh, obviously money started coming in, and with that we were able to buy a new van. Um, but I don't think that really happened until we borrowed a load of money off of maybe the Poison Girls to do stations because we had to bring that out ourselves because we were already being sniffed out by the police. Um, uh, and uh, and we didn't want to get we didn't want to get Pete Stennett into trouble, um, you know, so that Dad could close his record shop down. So we went not being funny, Pete, but we'll we'll sort of go independent. So we borrowed a load of money, and then we bought we started up Crass Records, um, and with the help of John Loder, and uh, I think it was the Poison Girls lent us a load of money, um, and then stations came out, and that generated enough money to pay back the Poisons. But then of course this you know all this money was coming, and John Loder went well. Look, you've got to get rid of it. 
Uh, otherwise, the tax man's going to come sniffing around saying, well, what the fuck should we do? Bought a new van. It's brilliant. So we could all go in the same van. And uh, I think we bought... I don't think we bought any new equipment, uh, but I think we might have bought some new speakers or something like that, you know, just to make stuff sound better. Um, and that was it. So we were, we were able to get, you know, mobile. Um, and then, you know, also to offset that, we decided to start printing leaflets and, and badges and things, which we'd give away free at, at gigs. You know, um, we always kept gig prices very low so that people could afford to get in. Um, but sometimes that backfired because it was only 50p to get in a show or something, you know, and of course, you know, quite often you'd be playing in the back room of a pub and of course once the pub shut, the, the drunk geezers would come round and sort of pay their 50p and come in and trash the place, you know, so that was a bit of a, a sod and the security always seemed to be on their side. So it was a sort of lose-lose situation, but, you know, we just kept going on it and, um, and quickly, it, you know, um, as the, you know, people heard the records and things that got out there. We got invites to go to Holland and places like that and go up to Scotland and all this. So this network very quickly appeared. I mean, we always tended to stay away from the mainstream um, circuit. That wasn't for us. I mean, I don't think they would have wanted us anyway. Um, so we started our own, and, and literally the way we got gigs was by word of mouth at gigs. We'd meet up with people, say we were playing Barnsley, and then someone from Leeds would be there. And, you know, I'll, you know, do you know anywhere we can play in Leeds, mate? Well, there's a cricket hut that, you know, sometimes find, and that's literally how, how it used to be. You know, people would write us, write to letters, you know, for the Royal Mail. There was no internet, as you know, at that time. Um, I don't think we even had a, yeah, yeah, we did have a telephone by that time. Yes, well, I, I know a lot of bands used to go to the phone box yeah, yeah. at a certain and time. We used to set up gigs like that, and this whole, we started up this whole new network, you know, which then, you know, thank God, bands like Conflict, uh, Subhumans, Poison Girls, uh, you know, uh, Flux Pink Indians, all of them started using that circuit rather than the mainstream circuit. Um, so it enabled people who, who would otherwise have gone into the big cities um, and paid lots of money on the door um, to be able to go to these little venues. Uh, yeah, you get risk. You get a risk of a good eye in, but um, but also you're you're getting to see a band that you really want to see for for cheap. Yes, uh, and then I mean at the time, I mean at the time you had you know obviously it's kind of real. Yeah, getting talked about in Parliament must have kind of been quite freaky for everybody because normally. You know, ninety percent of bands struggle and then never get anywhere. But a few make it, and then a few sort of like like yourself suddenly become sort of public enemy number one. Did that sort of slightly freak out everybody? Um, but not really. It, no, it didn't freak didn't freak us out. I, I think what it did was make us really suspicious. And and because um, we would, you know, we'd always maintain this. We we only did it for a laugh. We weren't trying to bring down the government or anything. We were just poking fun at them, you know, like that Thatcher Gate tape thing. It was it was all just a laugh. We thought there's no way they're going to take it serious, but of course they did, you know. And uh, this huge furore came up about it. So. I'm now on the CIA files and MI5 and Christ knows what, probably to this day, but um, it was just a bunch of young people having a laugh. Um, and, uh, but when we got headed note paper, you know, from the, from the House of Commons and, and Labour MPs saying, you know, really support you in your cause and things like, yeah, you twat, I bet, you know, if, bet if it had been the other way around, it would have been the Tories sending us bloody letters of support and it was like, I don't, you know, 
and I'm the saying to the rest of the band, I don't want anything to do with these people at all, you know, and uh, they said, and we all agreed. Um, but, um, I mean, the, the only problem was that, of course, the, you know, Margaret Thatcher put down a, a sort of media blanket on us so that, you know, there was no mention of us for quite a while. Yes, which must have felt, you know, that must have helped get galvanise the band and, 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 you know, the people that you liked, or, or not the people, the people who liked you. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, you, you feel like you're getting somewhere, you know, oh, you know, you're making sort of big stink, but on the other hand, it was like, well, maybe we should be start being careful here, because it wouldn't take much for them to make us physically disappear. You know? So, <laughs> I mean, a little bit of paranoia came in. Because, um, because at that stage, you know, there'd been the whole Wally Hope thing, so was there... A, you know, there must have been a little bit of, well, I say a little bit, but quite a lot of worry about sort of what could happen if, if you know, because at that stage, you know, the rise of, you know, Thatcherism and, and stuff was yeah. was quite spooky, really. So, and the police at that stage did seem a little bit more kind of, they didn't have so many people to answer to, or if they did, it wasn't, you know, it's like, just don't get caught, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think for us, it was like, well, I think we, you know, we all thought we were quite safe because we were quite in the public eye. Um, and um, they couldn't have sneaked into our place and sort of done us because they're, at that time the house was always full of visitors um, from abroad or from up north or whatever. So there was always witnesses around. Yes. Um, and, you know, so yeah, you sort of thought about it. I mean, there was a point where I used to sleep with a baseball bat by the side of my bed, but that's about it. Yeah, and and sort of remembering moments where one had shared living and and sort of lots of people about. Looking back, one thinks, God, that was quite hard going at times. How did it? How was it with the band and being at Dial House with so many people and having a record label and a band and so many people coming? Because because often it starts in a nice way and you sort of attract people who are pretty into it, and then one or two people start turning up where the the atmosphere and things start to get a bit odd and a bit tricky. So what? I mean, did you have a similar narrative, you know, with with Crass in that in that kind of same way? Uh, yeah, but it never. I mean, um, I think for us it was just normal. It was just the way we lived. Um, you know, we couldn't think of any other way there was. You know, the thought. You know, we always said we had an open door policy, so the door was open. Um, and uh, yeah, you'd get a couple of weirdos now and again. You know, a couple of undesirables that you'd have to sort of get rid of, but. Um, on the whole, it was it was just part of it. I mean, Crash never stopped anyway. I mean, the band, you know, the band, we were the band, the band was us, you know, so it wasn't like we um, would, I mean, we, we all lived in the same house, the band, you know, we, we the, the rehearsal room was in was in, the, in that house, so you, you couldn't come out of the rehearsal studio and say, all right, I'm going home now, because you were home, you know, so it, it never, ever stopped. It was just part of life, and, and people being around, and, you know, this different mishmash, um, it was just part of it. It was, um, I mean, just amazing times. I mean, I, looking back, I wonder, you know, I wondered that I didn't go mad, but at the time, <laughs> it was great. You know, what a, what a better upbringing to to be in. Yes, well, absolutely. You know? Yes, it's like I expect you had life's all lessons that life could throw at you in that period. Yeah, yeah. Which is quite interesting. So, as as the band progressed and towards the end, final album. Did you did it feel looking back at it that, that you could see the sort of the end was coming? I mean, because a lot of bands I speak to, they said, "Well, we were doing this album, we were getting tired, things had slightly slipped," you know, and and like you did more than just the two or three albums, because mostly the narrative of band is five years. They 
they do the single, you know, after 12 months, John Peel plays it, they get a John Peel session, then there's the tour, or, you know, a small tour, yeah. then then a bit of a bigger tour, then that second album. And things can be a bit tricky. If anybody ever tours America, it seems to finish them off. Europe's not yeah, so yeah. bad. But yeah. that kind of is the thing that often most people say, and then we did America, and then we came yeah. home and split up. So, but you, you know, you obviously progress a lot, a lot slightly longer. So I just wondered if, if as those last couple of albums were coming out, whether it was kind of, yeah, the last couple of albums. I mean, I, I, I you know, I mean, I liked. Um, I, I never really liked. Um, yes, sir, I will. I mean, I think it's a great. Uh, uh, if you read it, it's, it's a great. It gives you great insight into those times. Um, Ten notes on a summer's day, just put on the bonfire straight away. That is absolute rubbish, and I've always said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and. Uh, but no, I think I thought there was already. I mean, I think after uh, Christ the album, you know, there was already talk about look what we're going to do. You know, where's this coming now? And um, it's like, well, we we can't just sort of potter along. You know, we've got. To, and there was some very strange uh, conversations going on. I, I won't sort of say them over the. You know, I won't say yeah. them out. You know, what was being spoken about. But it was. Um, it would be considered terrorism now if 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 those conversations were to have. Uh, it, obviously, it never came to anything. It, but if that's those sort of ideas were being banded about, and I remember, you know, thinking, well, this has gone so far from what me and Penn en envisaged, you know, and, and this wasn't why I started wanted to be in a band, you know, this 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 wasn't it, you know, and and I was like already thinking, oh, you know, I'm not sure, and I was sort, of, I think all of us kicking our heels, but. Um, when Yes Sir Will came out, I mean, I, I don't know if we could all see the end, but we're all sort of going, well, when, you know, what can we do? What's what's next, you know? Um, and the way that the band finished, I mean, honestly, I mean, I've read interviews where Penny Rambo says that we had always agreed that we would end in 1984. That's that's not true. Um, because I, I remember on our records, it used to be 721984, 621984, like a countdown to 1984. Yes. Right, and so I remember saying to Penn, "Yeah, well, this is all really, really good, Penn, but what happens when it gets to 1984 and we're still going? What do we do when you know it's like 1985? Do we do sort of minus?" <laughs> and he went, "Oh, we'll put across that bridge when we come to it." And, you know, so there wasn't this idea of we're going to stop in, in 1984. Um, so uh, and so, it came as quite a surprise to me when we were driving home from that what was to be the last gig from Aberdeen, Wales, and suddenly Andy Palmer went, um, I, "You know, I want to leave the band." And of course, there was this chorus of like, "Oh no, don't, Andy! Why, why?" and all this. Um, and he explained why, and it was, you know, and then I think it was 20 minutes later or so. I think it was either me or Eve Libertine said, "Well, t tell the truth, Andy. If it hadn't been you, it would have been me, mate." And I think we were all were burnt out by it. I mean, there, you know, we got back and there was talk: should we continue without him? Um, and it was like, no, no, you know, the time has come. That's it. You know? Yes. Um, and because it was 1984, it seemed to fit. And I think that's the, it was like, well, it seems apt, you know, people are going to talk, it'll be a myth. Well, fuck it, you know. And so that was it. And I, I think, it, it, you know, it wasn't until months later um, that I realised how much of a weight uh, it had all been and just how heavy and, and excuse the pun, but black and, and dark it had been. Yes. Uh, doing that towards the end because it, it was relentless. Um, and it wasn't until I... Was on top of a bus going down the King's Road or something. I can't remember. And I saw these punks posing for the American tourists, and I, and I looked at myself in these raggedy black clothes, and I thought, 
you know what, I don't want to look like this no more. You know, I've, I've sort of done it, and I'd, I remember I'd, it used to be the shop in Battersea, it used to do um, retro 50s stuff. So I just went in there and I bought a pair of peg trousers and a, a, a sort of bowling shirt, and uh, I already had brothel briefs on, so that sort of fitted, and I combed my hair down flat um, into a side part, and then I came out of there looking totally different, wearing colour. <laughs> and I just threw all the black stuff in straight in the nearest bin, and uh, and I just felt so ref- it was like breathing again. Yes, well, it was. Uh, in- yeah, it was interesting because I remember it was um, it was another band. <laughs> it was James, and they were at the height of their sort of like commercial success in the nineties, and they were sitting around the swimming pool in Spain, and the guitarist said. Shall we split up because we all really hate each other? And everyone went, yeah, thank God for that. Yeah, let's just yeah. get rid of it. <laughs> it like, yeah. And it was like, oh, my God, it was, why, why, did Lee, why was it me? Why didn't you, someone else say it? It's like, well, we were just waiting for someone to say it. But, and it was like, yeah, it was like, oh, thank God. I can, my shoulders can drop about three inches now. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, it does happen. But then often there is that kind of, yeah. Then what happens after you've had that intense period, then then sort of like walking away from it as, as a, almost a Joy Division line, um, walk away in silence. So what, yeah, so what happens to you next? Uh, well, I was like, what the fuck do I do now? And uh, and personally, I was, uh, I mean, everyone just, everyone else out of the band just sort of got on with things. And I'm like, oh, fucking hell, I'd better look for a job. So, I, you know, I looked in the local paper and there was, of course, there was nothing. I was already on a scrap heap by that time. I was like 20-something. And um, I was like, Christ, I don't know, you know. So uh, I thought, I can't go back on a dull. Um, I mean, there was still a little bit of money around. A little, we used to give, um, we used to allow ourselves £500 a year, which to me, when I first got it, was a fortune. Until I worked it out, it was less than you getting on a dull a week. And, yes. um <laughs> So there was no, you know, uh, we did we hadn't bought property, we hadn't bought cars, you know. There was none of that. We didn't. I didn't even have a guitar, or a, I didn't have my own microphone from it, you know, nothing. Uh, and so it was like wallop, right back where I was before crash. What the fuck do I do now? And uh, and I just sort of mooched around for a while, you know, and um, and and that was it really. Um, yes, but that yeah. was the eighties. But you had kind of. The 90s, and then you, you know, like it was kind of mid, was it 07 when you got the, you know, you did a, a performance. But, you know, I just wondered how, because it was kind of one of, because I, I remember the sort of guy from Mega City 4 just saying he, he spent nine months kind of in a dazed, depressed state before he, something happened. But he, oh, yeah, yeah, I went through that. I mean, you know, because I'd go out and people would come up and say, ain't you that guy who used to be in crash? And I'm like, yeah, I'm the guy who used to be in crash. You know, <laughs> fuck, you know, this is horrible. Yes. Um, so you know, um, oh, then I, I'd, I'd been getting into rap music, and I had this idea for a song, and and uh, so I phoned up Colin Jerwood uh, from Conflict, and I mean, Carl, I've got this this song, I've got an idea for it, and maybe you know, maybe Conflict could do the backing for it. And we got together, and he said, look, you know, Riggs, why don't you know, I've got this idea, why don't we, you know, just do a big fuck off gig at the Brixton Academy, and you know, we call it the, the what's it of the. the what was it called? The what's it with the five thousand? The feeding. No, it weren't the feeding. We called it something else. The something of the gathering of five. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or returning rebellion into money or something. Anyway, gathering of five. So we did it at um, uh, this big gig at Brixton Academy, um, and then I decided to sort of hang out with Conflict for a while. And me and Colin were writing songs together, worked on a, a few albums. It was really great. 
and so I did that for a, for a while, you know, about a year and a half, maybe longer, I can't remember. But um, so there was things like that coming on. But um, yeah. Yes. So when so when did you have an idea to think, look, I'm going to do those songs again of Crass. I'm going to play a gig at the Shepherd's Bush. And... Oh, mate, that weren't me at all. Like, the, the way that came about, I moved up to, me and me missus moved up to Norfolk, right, because my mum had died for it and uh, all, you know, so there's nothing left to stay there for it was I was living in Yona's house sort of paying rent basically um, and she went oh I'd like to move to somewhere else and I was like oh, oh alright so we started looking and uh, looked around ended up in Hickling in Norfolk we were renting this place while we were looking for some you know somewhere to live full time and my idea was to move up here and I'd, I'd maybe write a book or something. I'd sweep leaves and sort of do gardening. That's it. Music was out. I ain't fucking doing that no more. Da, da, da. And one day I'll get a phone call from a mate, you know, and there's this bloke who wants to talk to me about doing a gig. So I'm right, OK. So phoned him up. I mean, what's this about a gig? And he went, oh, well, what it is, we're doing a two-day festival at, at um, Brixton Academy and wondered if you'd like, you know, like to do a, a sort of show. I mean, what sort of things do you want me to do? I mean, well, ideally, something like you did at Milton Keynes, you know, where I just did a few crash songs and this sort of thing. And I was like, well, how long do I get? And he went, well, about half hour, I can stretch it to 35. And I went, OK, all right. I said, who else is playing? And he went, oh, conflict, usual suspects, the damned, blah, blah, blah. I was like, OK, I'll give you a bell back, you know, da 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 So, uh, uh, I was like, that's it, that's it, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I'm not really interested. So I went down the pub, came back, a couple of friends of mine came over for a, for a meal and uh, and then I, t- I told them about this, you know, gig that I've been offered and uh, and they both said, well, are you going to do it? And I went, no, nah, I'm not interested. And I went, why not? And I went, because I'm fed up with it. You know, I've been doing those songs for like Christ knows how long and all they want me And uh, Sadie goes, you know, what's your favourite book? And I went, well, Saturday night and Sunday morning or Bright and Rock. And she went, how many times have you read it? And I went, oh, about 20, 30 times. And she went, well, don't you think it's the same for those people who who want to hear those songs done right? And I went, yeah, you've got a point there. And I said, well, you know, if I did it, it would have to be something totally different. And I, I said, and suddenly this idea came, and I went, Sadie, you, you, do, you sing, didn't you? And she went, yeah. And I went, well, would you be, you know, would you do a couple of songs with me on stage? And she went, yeah. And I, and Al, her partner, he went, what do you think they're doing, Steve? And I went, I think they're doing the Feeding the 5,000 from start to finish, as it was, as it's never been performed since we recorded it, uh, without a silence. Anyway, I got got back to this uh, Chris Geezer, and I went, OK, here's the idea, and I run this idea past him, and the fucking phone went dead, and I thought, shit, I've really upset him. You know, I think he didn't like the record or something. He puts the phone down, calls him back four minutes later, went, right, here's the deal. You're headlining two nights, Shepherd's Bush Empire. I've got it all lined up, blah, blah, blah. And I went, oh, hang on, hang on a minute, mate. He went, no, it's going to be great. Um, feeding the 5,000 played in all its entirety for the first time in 30 years. Like, and, of course, it turned into the thing it did. I had no idea. Yes. And did it, I mean, performing that again, because uh, speaking to quite a few people, sometimes, you know, people have, there's often a 30-year narrative, you know, like, and this isn't quite probably 30 years, but, you know, whereas people have done that thing, the band, and then they've gone, Jesus, I've just got to get another life, and I'd want to... And then th- a period of time passes, and then they can then look back without it sort of sending chills down their spine or whatever, mm-hmm. and and then think, actually, no, I'm quite enjoying this now. This is all right. And it's kind of, without sounding corny and new-agey, but sort of making peace with some of that past, which you think, please, I'd never want to hear those songs again. Yeah. Did that happen with you at all? Um, 
No, what I realised was that people, you know, um, that whether I like it or not, or whether the ex-members of Crass like it or not, you know, the, the, what, what we did as that band has touched people incredibly deeply, and I mean emotionally. And for a lot of people, those songs have never stopped being relevant. Um, and, um, I mean, I think if I was out there doing it every bloody week, every year, it would get very boring. But because I sort of leave a bit of time, you know, for it to, you know, it has to feel right for me to do it. You know, is this the right time to do it? Am I just sort of being a sort of rock and roll here? Um, but no, it feels right um, to do. Um, certainly with the with the person who's running America and the person who's supposedly running this country at the moment, um, it seemed the right thing to do, so... Uh, yes. That's why I did it. So it's not. Um, I mean, I enjoy, I enjoy performing the songs. The one thing I hate about doing it is rehearsing, uh, because I know the songs backwards. Um, and but I've still got to go in this bloody studio. These noisy drums and guitars and oh god. And sort of, yeah. Oh, do we have to do other living? Yes, we do. Steve, come on. All oh, right then. God Almighty. You know, it's like. Oh. Um, I mean, it's almost at the point where I could read a paper while I'm singing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose it's, going back to dear old David Bowie, I suppose there was times when he said, right, that's it, I'm never doing the back catalogue. And I'm sure he meant it. And then five, ten years later, you know, he's singing Starman or Ziggy Stardust. And he, and you think, you can't just, you know, say, oh, point Well, that's, that's the thing that, that another friend of mine said, you know, that, you know, he said, what's your favourite David, David Bowie song? I went, sweet thing. And, he, and, um, and I suddenly thought, do you know what, these He's right, you know, if I went to see David, God bless him if he was still alive, you know, if I went to see him live and he didn't do Sweet Thing or he didn't do Starman, you know, I'd, I'd fucking hate his guts. <laughs> you, you bastard, you didn't do it. Oh, you, do you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, so I, feel, I sort of understand it now, but and I think that's partly why um, with Slice of Life, you know, I, I keep it as different, you know. Slice of Life is the is the my new thing that I do, so don't expect to hear crass stuff, even though I've done a couple of, we do a couple of crass songs now and again, but once we're doing this tour, we won't be. But, you know, that's, Slice of Life is the new stuff I'm doing, where I've, that's my older stuff. Yes. But, you know, I, I can still do the crass stuff. And when you started recording and, and putting Slice of Life together, was that a relatively fast, you know, process, or were they songs that took a while to create? Because obviously, and the band has a more, it's quite a sophisticated sound, isn't it? Yeah, but we keep it very, you know, I always keep it very simple. I mean, a lot of the songs aren't more than two chords long, you know, I mean, maybe three or four or five, but um, I, I wanted to keep it simple for that, you know, for that idea of, like, if someone comes to see us, they're not going to get that thing of, oh, I could never do that. I want people to be able to say, oh, I could do that. Yes, you can. That's the whole point. Now go and do it. Um, but, so, but um, no, it, it wasn't difficult. I mean, because Carol and Pete and Pete are very competent musicians, you know, and it's so easy to work out stuff with them. Uh, and I'm very free and easy, you know. So, you know, I'll just say to Pete, oh, look, I've got, this, I've got these three chords, mate. You know, what, what do we do with these? And he goes, well, no, no, no. I'm like, oh, brilliant. So uh, it's it's literally that, um, um, and songs come together very quickly, you know, um, and it's yeah, it just sort of tootled along, you know. Yes. I mean, they were, they we were doing it. But it's interesting because you, you know, like obviously the songs you were writing in the early '80s has still touched people and is still relevant today, and the feedback you've got from songs that you've recently you know recorded and performed mm. i've noticed and i read a lot of the feedback and it, again it touches people 
you know, because obviously we're all getting older, we all sort of yeah. experience the ups and downs and medical issues and problems and parents and yeah. friends and all that. So obviously you're, you've managed to sort of tap into that zeitgeist of kind of, yeah, being kind of real and true rather than trying to say, oh, I went out all night partying and making love. <laughs> As you um, and, you know, so obviously you, you, you managed to sort of write something and record something that is, is kind of like very genuine. Well, I think that when I write, I'm, I've always got this vision of myself washing up uh, and looking out the kitchen window, singing along to a song. Um, and that's the way that I tend to write my songs, is I imagine someone listening to this song while they're washing up. Is it going to work? Will they be able to sing it? You know, it's that, and will it be relevant? Um, and of course, yeah, I can't write about going out and, you know... Uh, twatting 20 skinheads over the heads with baseball bats anymore, you know, I can't sort of, <laughs> can't do that, I've done all my anti-government stuff, you know, um, what what pisses me off now is the fucking amount of people waiting in the doctor's waiting room while I'm waiting for my prescription sort of thing, you know, <laughs> or missing me, me, uh, me appointment. Yes. Um, you know, that hair growing, where's that, why is that hair growing there and not in the other, you know, for God's sake, um, <laughs> Good. why is it taking, why do I make this noise every time I get up or sit down? <laughs> <laughs> And, and it's, it's, you know, and obviously a lot of friends that have, have gone, you know, um, due to cancer, you know, loss and all that sort of stuff, you know, and it's all relevant, you know, and, and who else is really talking about it, you know, and, I, I you know, I'm not going to sit here and write, you know, sitting in the middle of Norfolk, well, on the coast of Norfolk, writing about life in the city. Um, I can't do that. I don't live in the city and I'm not certainly going to sit down and write some bullshit about when I was in Los Angeles, you know, and all this and hanging out and blah, blah, oh, fuck that. No, I'm going to write about, you know, where, what happens when your local shop runs out of milk. Yes. You know, well, I'd have to be careful about that because I'd have the vegans on me, but, you know, if it ran out of bread, bake your own. Oh, for fuck's sake, I can't win. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the village shop, it's essential. Yeah. But look, just lastly, what would you, you know, if you could have said something to your 18-year-old self or something that you think after all these decades and all that experience, you know, you think, God, oh, there's a couple of key things that I've really learned that I'd be happy to tell anybody who was either starting out or now, you know, just that, that, kind, of, that kind of key thing. Um, well, it's going to get worse before it gets better, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> or, or, you know, or, um, you know, uh, yeah, don't keep looking in the mirror. <laughs> or you... don't keep old fo- don't keep old photographs. Yes, you, when you look at those pictures, yeah. Even though you'd say, "Are we?" I mean, you might not actually. I don't know. I'm just putting words in your mouth here. But there is a real style, wasn't there? Because I I remember some sometimes seeing pictures of you and the band on people's walls and thinking, "My God, I could never look that." edgy and glamorous in a crass sort of way did you were you were you when you look back at that do you think or do you think mm. i don't know i mean i'm just curious because because obviously you do become the pin-up even if you don't want to be up <laughs> you you know even if you don't want to be a pin-up you are a pin-up and and you fo- the band and yourself felt photographed so well yeah i, I, I think it's because we never knew they were being taken maybe so we were never posing um so, yeah, I don't know what it is. It's just so, so natural. I think, and plus, I think, you know, what those songs are like. I mean, obviously, when we were playing live, it was they were even faster. Um, so you didn't have time to look around, really. You're just sort of standing, you know, Steve, you don't move around a lot on stage. Well, you try moving when you're sort of machine gunning out, basically, 
uh, one song, which is the length of an Oasis album. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yes. Good, uh, uh, yeah. Sort of, don't know. I just look at them, you know, sort of think, well, weren't bad looking, was I? <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, no one. Yeah. I mean, as a fan, just lastly, as a fan, no one really wants a band to reform because that's a, that's a terrible idea from yeah. from hearing people. But you kind of would like to think that the, some of the members still sort of occasionally just drop an email or even a Christmas card. I mean, what's the, you know, it's the vibe with, because there was a lot of people that passed through that band, not just the members, but, you know, various other people. Do you still have a quite a nice vibe with some of them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm in contact with, um, with some of them. So, um, you know, and other people that I didn't really ever socialise with anyway outside the band. But, um, yeah, still, still, you know, chat with each other, send each other, you know, um, messages and stuff. So yeah, we're all still there. If it, you know, if ever we bump into each other, it's always hugs and smiles. You know, well, not at the moment wouldn't be, would it? But uh, you know, <laughs> no, uh, no, no. It's, it's all okay. But you know, I don't. I think all of us agree that you know, to for us to actually, you, you've got to remember that some of them are in their seventies now. So I, you know, I'm not sure that they'd be able to do it. No, God, so, no. And that, and to be honest, you know, I think it's. Um... I and I, I just don't think it would be right. No, I think, you know. yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's such a weird thing. When, oh, God, I wish so-and-so would reform. I think, have you seen a... No, 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 let's remember them for that. And if, yeah. they're, still, and if they're still doing things now, great. But yeah. let's not try and relive our 18-year-old self, because let's face it, look in the... Or, you know, if you want to get high now, just get up on the sofa quickly and you go, oh, I feel a bit dizzy. You think, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, you don't need drugs. You just need to either sit down or stand up very quickly from the sofa. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah, so try and, yeah, reliving one's 18-year-old self is just a terribly embarrassing thing. And that was my interview with Steve Ignorant, one-time member of Crass. I know, it's so boring to say that, isn't it? It's the past, but anyway... And also got a fantastic solo career. And also, if you're interested, and you should be, he has got a good website with lots of information about him and also upcoming projects and also availability of other exciting things, T-shirts, CDs, DVDs, vinyl books, etc., etc. Check it out. It is, I'll give you the website, it's steveignorant.com. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show, and also all these interviews and the playlists are being archived or filed anyway on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Anyway, thank you for listening. If you still are, have a great week.